You may be seated. And if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. If you are watching with us at home um, and don't have a Bible, maybe clicked on a link and found yourself here, uh, we would love to get you a Bible. Also, if you're visiting with us here and you don't have a Bible, um, grab me afterwards. We would love to get a Bible into your hands. Um, as you're turning to 1 Peter, just a couple of quick announcements. Um, we are having a young adult fellowship this summer. Um, the details for that are in your announcements. Um, you can still continue to give um, by um, leaving a check in the offering plate over there, and we're not handing it around um, for safety and health reasons. Uh, or you can give online. Just go to our website um, and click on give on the top header. Also on our website, if you are not signed up for the newsletter, uh, we, would, um, we would encourage you to sign up through our website. Just click on connect and there's a link to sign up for our church newsletter up there. Finally, if you've not uh, been joining us for corporate prayer, we are praying together as a congregation every Sunday night at 630. Um, the link for that is in the newsletter. Um, and uh, if you want it and did not get the newsletter, uh, just email me um, and I can send you a link. So we do that via Zoom, um, 6.30 for half an hour every Sunday night. Well, we're back um, in the same passage that we were in last week from 1 Peter chapter 2 because I felt like, well, well for two reasons. Uh, one, um, uh, Adam is preaching next week. And when I looked down the list of things that he was going to preach on, um, it included submission. And I thought, I might want, I, if I'm smart, I'll just leave that touchy subject to him. Um, <clears throat> but if I'm merciful, I'll leave that for myself. Um, but also I felt like there was just a lot to be said um, still um, in this passage for us in our cultural moment. And so 1 Peter chapter 2 starting with verse 9, reading through verse 12. This is God's word. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you are the great king and prophet. And so when you speak, you speak with resurrection power that can transform us. You don't speak like any earthly ruler does, for you have power to transform us from the inside out. And so we pray by your spirit, through your word, speak to us today as we have sung. We pray this in your name, our Savior. Amen. Who are we? It's a, it's a question that we may not ask. I mean, but it is a question that we always assume an answer to. It's an essential starting point. Who 
are we as human beings, right? To use technical language, anthropology is essentially important. That's what, how you answer that question, who are we, is, is really at the heart of so many different things. In fact, a lot of the broader discussions that are going on about sexuality, even race, rights, are, are answering first, assuming an answer to that question at least, who are we? Because you can't get to the issue of human flourishing without first assuming what it is to be human, and what it is to be broken, in fact. John Calvin said it this way. He said, the key to human flourishing is a twofold knowledge, a knowledge of God and a knowledge of self. This is the way he says it. Nearly all wisdom which we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists in two parts. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. And then listen to what he says. While the two are joined by many bonds, which one proceeds and brings forth the other is not easy to discern. In other words, God's word speaks to both. Who we are speaks to our knowledge of ourselves, but it also speaks to our knowledge of God. And Calvin's point is they're always interacting with each other. Or to say it another way, you can only know yourself truly when you are in proper relationship to your creator. In other words, this is what Peter's transitioning into in verse 11. He starts this in verse 11, this way, beloved. And he starts that way as he's going to do in chapter tw- or 4, verse 12, as a transition point in his letter. He's writing this letter to a group of churches who are facing increasing pressure from the culture around them to conform to the cultural desires. And he reminds them that they're sojourners and aliens. But the, as he transitions here, In verse 12, he transitions with this key word, beloved. Again, you'll find this word in verse 12. He's starting a new section. And here's what he's going to transition into, as I mentioned earlier. He's going to talk about submission as the lifestyle for the followers of Jesus. But before he can talk about submission, which, by the way, he's going to talk about wives to husbands, husbands to wives, employees to employers, citizens to governors. Across the board, one of the things that sojourners and exiles who live beloved under Jesus should be marked by is the humility of submission. But before he can transition into that, he's going to have to talk about our desires, which wage war against our soul. It's, it's the word that he uses for passion in verse 11. Abstain as sojourners and exiles. Beloved sojourners, exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, because that type of lifestyle of humble submission to others is going against all of our natural impulses. And so he's going to have to address our natural impulses because here's the Bible's premise about who we are. We are naturally desiring beings. Those, the word that he uses for passions here in verse 11 captures this idea. It's not just the existence of desire, but the strength 
of the desire. For instance, in Luke 22, Jesus uses the same Greek word when Jesus says, I long, it's the night before he goes to the cross, when he is sitting down to eat the last meal with his disciples, which will transition into him instituting this meal that we'll eat together today as his people. He says, I've longed to eat this meal with you. It's not just simply a desire, and it is the same Greek word, but a very strong, deep down core desire of his, a longing that will manifest itself. It's more than just and emotion. It was deeper and, and more profound. And so let's not confuse our passions with our emotions. This is deeper than that to the core of our beings. But here's the point that Peter is making. We are longing people. We are passionate people. We are desiring people. And our desires always manifest themselves in our actions. But here's Peter's point. Our desires are all out of whack. And so they wage war against our soul because they are passions of the flesh. And here's what he means by flesh. He means the controlling power of sin. Because as we often say, before sin is something that we do, sin is a power that is at work in us. And it is a corrupting power. And Peter's point is it has corrupted us down to the level of our desires. And the way that that manifests itself is that we do not want the things that we should want. And we want things that we shouldn't want. And so our passions are all out of whack. See, the problem is not with our desires. Being a desiring being is what it means to be created in the image of God. The problem is that our desires have been corrupted by sin and have become passions of the flesh or fleshly passions, and as a result, are now bent, that's what sin does, it bends things, it corrupts God's good things, and now we are bent towards rebellion and pride. So let me illustrate it this way. Parents, would you think for a minute, what is the first word your child learned to say with force? First word may have been first word may have been mama, may have been daddy. If the child was smart, it would have been mama. But the first word that they said with zeal and gusto was probably this: "No." In fact, you don't have to teach them rebellion. You have to teach them a lot of things. You have to potty train them. You have to teach them how to walk. You have to teach them how to eat. These things don't come naturally. They have to be learned. But the one thing that you never have to teach your child is to rebel against you. That comes naturally because that's the way sin has bent us. And that is why Peter refers to the flesh in verse 11 
the inner disposition that has corrupted our desires and as a result now wages war against our soul. And so there's this inner beast of fleshly desires and that beast needs to be slayed. And so here's what I want to do with our remaining time. I want us to give I want to give us some very practical things that we can do to kill or slay our fleshly desires. John Owen famously said this, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And he didn't just mean sinful acts that we do. He meant the flesh. He meant that inner disposition, the inner power that is waging war against your soul. Be killing that or it will be killing you you. And so here are six steps, six practical things that we can do at the soul level. You'll notice that these really are at the heart level, not just simply at the behavior level, because in all of these things, this is an attempt to deal with our desires by bringing Jesus close. So one, root your identity in Christ not in your sinful desires. It's important how you name yourself. That's why, that's why Peter begins this call to put to death, to abstain from the passions of the flesh with the reminder, you're the beloved ones. You're God's beloved ones. It is important how you name yourself. If you struggle with addiction, we have many who have, you have heard me get on this hobby horse you are in Christ, you are also someone who struggles with your fleshly desires. But whatever you put first in that sentence will define the fight because it's gotten the focus. So if you say, I'm an alcoholic and also a Christian, whatever you put first is going to define the fight because that's where you've put your identity and that goes for all of our desires. I'm a coveter. Some struggle with sexual attraction to someone of the same sex. Some with anger. All of us with pride. But if you are in Christ, that is not primarily who you are. You are primarily verse 9. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. A people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, in light of that identity, to live out of it and put to death the passions of the flesh. Whatever gets the primary focus will win the fight in that battle. To slay. And so notice this. Now let's translate. If you've got your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 6, because this is how Paul develops a vision for sexual holiness in light of our union with Christ. This is what he says flee from sexual immorality. Now, if you're visiting with us and aren't a Christian, you think that is the end of Christian sexual ethics. That is not the end. That is not 
what sexual holiness looks like. You think, if that's what you think is the whole totality of what the Bible has to say about sex and sexuality, you're missing the primary point. Flee from sexual immorality. This is 1 Corinthians 6.18. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. That would be a good argument. Like you're damaging yourself, but that's not where he ends. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Flee from sexual immorality because your body is God's temple where he dwells by his Holy Spirit. That body has been bought with a price, belongs to Jesus. And so as a result, flee from sexual immorality. It's not who you are. Remember who you are and live in light of it. So you are not your sin. You are you're in Christ. Remind, remember that first and then fight against your sin. Identity precedes everything. Secondly, and I really wrestled with this order, but I think this order is important. Secondly, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Verse 11, beloved, there's the identity marker. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. And here's the principle that we laid out last week. If you feed a desire, it will grow. If you starve a desire, it will shrink. And that's very uncommon thinking. It's actually upside down from the way the world thinks. The conventional thinking is that a desire must be satisfied. But the irony is that line of thinking always gets us trapped in a death spiral because you cannot satisfy these desires. Consider an addict who goes after satisfaction only to find himself wanting more and more and more and more. No man has ever found lust diminishing after attempting to fulfill it. It has only grown until he is addicted to pornography. If you feed the flesh with sin, it will grow into a beast that consumes everything around you. But if you starve by abstaining from that desire, you will begin to see it diminish. It may not ever go away. In fact, most of our strongest desires never go away. But you will find that if you abstain from the passions of the flesh, that the power of the gospel will be more than enough to fight that desire. But this is not about willpower. It's about Christ's power who is present in his people by his spirit, enabling us to abstain from the passions of the flesh. So listen to what Paul says in Galatians 5, 16. It's a very similar idea he's picking up in Galatians 5. And he says this, I say, walk by the spirit 
and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. There's a promise that you can hang on as you're abstaining. If I'm walking by the Spirit, if I'm living with my eyes on Jesus, He'll enable me to abstain from the power of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, and those desires will diminish in power. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These two are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Do you hear that promise? The Spirit's at work in you, keeping you from doing the things that you want to do because the things that we want to do are waging war against our soul. And so by the power of the Spirit, abstain so you begin to see that desire shrink. Three, remember that we don't want God to give us over to our desires. When God gives his people over to what we want, he is really giving us over to them. So in Romans 1, Paul is talking about the core of sin. And his premise is this, that the heart of sin is worship exchange. That we make something else ultimate before God, the creator and redeemer. That's what sin does. It, in, if we're bent towards rebellion, in our rebellion against God, we want to put something else in its place. So he says it's glory exchange. You're attempting to exchange the glory of God to find glory in the created thing. And then in Romans 1.24, if you're taking notes, he says this. As a result, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who's blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to their dishonorable passions. It's an act of God's judgment to say, you want this? I'm going to let you have it. Because I want you to see that it will destroy you and everything else around you. And this is what he goes on, he says. For their women exchanged, as a result, when God gave them over to their desires, their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for error, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, something less than human, to do what ought not to be done. Now, if you are thinking here, I'm off the hook because that's not my struggle, and you're looking outward at the world and seeing, saying, simply, do you see what's going on? I want you to hear what he says next. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Evil, covetousness, that one hits here. Malice, that one hits here. They're all full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're all gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. It hits all of us. You don't want God to give us over to our desires because we are capable of any sin unless God restrains our desires. Do not think that you are incapable of anything on this list because you don't yet 
desire it. The capacity to desire it lies within all of us. And if God gives you over to your desires, this is what Paul says, all manner of unrighteousness is possible. Therefore, embrace the kindness of God to not give us what we want by simply acknowledging, Lord, all my wants are out of whack. Fourth, and this gets to a heart-level pattern of our desires, beware of your eyes. Because we need to go a little bit deeper than simply abstaining. We need to know how our desires get fulfilled. There is a pattern to our hearts, to the level of our desires, and it works like this. What you behold, you become, either for ruin or restoration. Jesus said it this way, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. What you look at, what you behold, you become. And so the pattern works like this. Look, take, taste. Oftentimes when I'm dealing with a couple who maybe are dating, engaged, and they come to me and they, in God's kindness, has convicted them of their sexual immorality, and we're talking through it, and I'll say, where do you think it got, went wrong? And they say, well, we should never have been together alone in my room. I'm like, whoop. That's like trying to stop a train that is barreling down with a cotton ball. You've got to be aware of the pattern. Look, take, taste. Before you ever tasted, there was a lot of heart-level work that was going on. See, this is Eve's temptation in Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband with her and he ate. That very same language, look, she saw, it became a delight, she tasted it, look, take, taste, also is repeated in Joshua 7. A man named Achan stole some things that the Lord had devoted to destruction in Jericho, and he and his people came under the Lord's judgment. And when the Lord exposed him, this is what he said. This was the heart of what happened. When I saw... Among the spoil, a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and I took them. I saw them, I coveted them, desired them, delighted in them, and then I took them. Look, take, taste. Looking stirs our desires. And from there, it is off to the races. But now take this principle and change the object to Jesus. What you behold, you become either for ruin or restoration. And hear what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And we with all unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Our desires are meant, are designed to be stirred by what we look at. When you look at Jesus and he becomes your delight, you're transformed from one degree of glory to another. Either for ruin, when we look at the created object and our desires are let go, or Jesus, our gracious Savior, 
for our sin died, for our sin reigning, for our sin coming again, then we are changed into his likeness. Fifth, cause your heart to see sin's ugliness so that you can be convinced that it's waging war against your soul. Right? Cause your heart to see sin's ugliness. Because what Satan does is he presents sin to us as beautiful. So unmask his lies by seeing what sin does to us. It dehumanizes us. Consider our Old Testament reading from last week was from Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar is rebelling against God. God removes his hand of blessing from him, and the king degrades to the point where he's a mindless beast eating grass. And it's a logic lesson for God's people. Do you see? If you rebel against me and I give you over to your desires, you're going to fall into this. So I want you to see what sin does. If you pursue this desire, it'll make you less than human. But we also need to see what sin deserves, the wrath and curse of God. Because if we don't consider this as well, we will continue to be self-consumed. And self-consumed people will eventually give over to their desires. But if we see that sin deserves the consuming wrath of God, which was so fierce that only His Son could bear it, and He did so with fierce trembling and fear, well, then it will take some of the shine off whatever our flesh is desiring. And then lastly, sixth, understand the power of a new affection. All these things need to be replaced. We are desiring beings, right? Our desires need to be fulfilled. It's not enough just to abstain and stop these things. Our desires need to be fulfilled. And so understand the power that a new desire, a new affection can enforce in our lives, the way it transforms. And let me illustrate it this way. Imagine, parents, that your child picks up a box cutter. It's shiny. It's a size their little hand can hold. It's even a nice weight for their hands. It appeals a lot to a little kid. But you know it's dangerous. There are things that you know that they don't know. You can see beyond the pleasure it brings. They only know its appeal but not its danger. Now imagine as their heart has delighted in that thing, you rip it from their hands. They will throw a fit. Because they have their hearts set on that desiring thing. Wailing will follow. And that's okay. It's good parenting to protect your child. Don't give them everything they want. I know the children around here saying, I, don't, I think we want to find another church after he says that. Don't give them everything they want. That's good parenting. But there's another approach you could take to prevent the wailing. Give them something better that appeals to more of their affections. Replace the former desirable thing with the thing that's more desirable. Give them their favorite toy and they will not only put the box cutter down, they'll never miss it. That's the power of a new affection. In, in Greek story, in Greek narrative, in Greek mythology, the sirens were mythical creatures that sang gloriously beautiful songs. They were so captivating that 
as nearby sailors rode past their island, their beautiful song would draw them in until they crashed their ships on the rocks. There were two approaches to dealing with the sirens in Greek mythology. One approach comes from the Odyssey. Homer proposed that one solution to the alluring song of the sirens was to have Odysseus stick wax in his sailors' ears and then lash them to the masts so that even though they heard the song, they couldn't get free to run their ship aground. And then he had himself tied to the mast as well. But you know, Odysseus, they made it safely past the siren song, but they almost went mad in the process. And Odysseus lost six men. And let me suggest, I think that's the way of moralism. That's the way many people think that religion tells us to deal with our desires. Plug your ears, restrain yourself, that's the end of the story. That's not the way of the gospel. Jason the Argonaut, on the other hand, took a different tactic. He grabbed Orpheus for his journey. Orpheus was the most accomplished musician in the empire, in all the known land. And when the sirens began to sing their song, Orpheus pulls out his lyre. And he played music that was more beautiful than the sirens. And no men were lost. And Jason's men delighted in the journey as they listened to the more pleasant, more beautiful song. The song of the sirens lost its allure. That's the power of a new affection. See, most of us think that Odysseus's way is the way of the Christian life. But here's the song. Jesus delights in his people so much that he sings over us. Songs of delight because we've been cleansed of our sin and made his people who were once not a people. Songs of delight over his redeemed. He takes pleasure in us. And so hear Paul's words now in 2 Corinthians. Because when his desires began to get pulled by the song of the flesh, he heard the other song. A song whose melody was the cross and whose power was the spirit of love. And he says this, For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this. The one who has died for all Therefore, we have died. He's not only died for our sins, but he's died so that we would have the power to hear his song on our ears and therefore have his love control us. And being controlled by the love of the Savior is such a better song than simply trying to control our out-of-control desires. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your table. You are a Lord full of grace and mercy, full of justice and righteousness. And so we humbly come before you with Christ as our only plea. Oh, but what a sufficient plea he is.
for he is our rock and our delight, our only hope in the midst of the war against our flesh. For he's the great shepherd of the sheep who leads us both in the valley of the shadow of death and to green pastures. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, in due time, bring us out of this plague by bringing relief. Please, Lord, protect us as our people from the coronavirus and bring a vaccine in due time and give our governmental leaders wisdom as they lead. We pray for the Warrens in Ethiopia, our missionaries there in Addis. Bless their labors among those afflicted with HIV, the poor, the widows, the destitute. May your church in Ethiopia grow to overflowing out of their acts of love and mercy. God, we pray for the RUF campus ministers as they start up a new school year and make the great complexities of the coronavirus open doors for the gospel, doors that they could never believe that you could open, open those during this time. And may we see these college students flooding to Jesus and to his church as a result. Lastly, Lord, you are... You're greater than our desires. And so, Holy Spirit, subdue our fleshly desires. We pray for those struggling with disordered sexual desires that they would find Jesus to be enough for the battle. We pray for those who covet. May we put to death our covetous hearts and know and learn the secret of contentment. May we live on the path of death and resurrection with all of our desires. Put anger and malice to death in us and raise love and charity. Finally, Lord Jesus, as our Savior, we pray the prayer that you taught your followers how to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.